Welcome to Outspoken, a podcast for social change, where we talk about current events and how they relate to interpersonal violence and abuse. Outspoken is a project of the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center located in San Marcos, Texas. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse and is seeking support, services, or needs more information, links to resources can be found in our episode description. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not reflect the views of their organizations or affiliates. Welcome back to Outspoken, a podcast for social change. I'm Kirsten. I'm Kiara. And I'm Megan. In this episode, we're discussing victim blaming, how it shows up in the media and in our everyday lives. We will be sharing a content warning as well. Um, we'll be talking about victim blaming, sexual assault, kidnapping, and abuse. So let's get started by defining what is victim blaming. Victim blaming can be defined as someone saying or implying or treating a person who's experienced harm or abusive behavior like it was a result of something they did or said instead of placing the responsibility where it belongs, which is on the person who harmed them or the person who, you know, did the um, violent act against them. So we see this a lot with domestic violence. We see this a lot with sexual assault. Um, And we're going to explore that and how it shows up in the media today. So I want to start what kind of uh, made us decide that this is a topic we wanted to delve into was the news of Eliza Fletcher in Tennessee. She was a mother and a teacher who was kidnapped while she was running and later was found or she was abducted and then later found dead. And there was a lot of Unfortunately, we w- there was a lot of uh, victim blaming in the comments and the and a lot of the reactions to the story and 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 is and and there were people you know of course who completely empathized with the situation, but if there was also things like well why was she running at four thirty in the morning you know like, yeah. you know or talking about what she was wearing and. And what really makes me especially angry about comments like well why was she running at four thirty in the morning is it's so on the other end as a mother <laughs> and as a person who works full time you hear we'll just have time to self care you know exercise is important wake up early to get in your exercise it's exactly. like she, so in that yeah so in that end she was doing the things that we're also tell like society is also saying to do and that we're also like encouraging mothers to do which is like take care of yourself and like have time for yourself and sometimes that means waking up at 4 30 in the morning especially when you're a teacher sure which i believe she was and a mother and commenting on whether or not she was wearing headphones or you know what she was wearing or I mean even things like you know she should have been carrying a gun a lot of people like to go there sometimes with victim she should have been wearing mace or pepper spray yeah yeah. this belief that like going outside and running early in the morning is inherently dangerous when it shouldn't be (laughs) going outside (laughs) and running is not inherently dangerous and we I talked a little bit about this with our boss and we were talking about like if she instead had gone to the gym and maybe had ran at the gym, mm-hmm. that it's still in. If she had been kidnapped at the gym and it still happened, people would have found some way to blame her for that. She could have been assaulted and abducted within the gym, outside of the gym. It's almost like there is no safe place to go. Like we know specifically as like women that we're constantly thinking about what potentially could happen to us you could be doing everything right and it could still happen to you but of course it's so easy for people to think about what you did wrong in their eyes anyway yeah there's no such thing as a perfect 
victim. I mean, like, what? I mean, like, what? It would even be a perfect victim. Like, that doesn't exist in the world. That's not how things are. And the fact that people all are tending to look for how things could have gone differently when what that ends up doing is making the person who something happened to feel like it's their fault when it's absolutely, and I just want to say, because I hadn't, I hadn't said it yet, it's never the person's fault uh, when something violent happens to them. It's the person who is committing the violent act's fault. Yeah. And when we react the way that we tend to react, it's just a reflection on society that we still have a long way to go to like really understanding that and really looking at where blame should lie. Which kind of connects to some of the other conversations that we've had around victim blaming. We've talked about it a little bit in other episodes, previous episodes, but even if this is your first time listening to our podcast, I'm sure you're very familiar with some of the other things that people are told generally, especially women, things like use the buddy system, don't walk alone at night. Uh, if you're going to go out and drink, watch your drink, uh, make sure that nobody roofies it or spikes it, but also don't drink too much because it makes you vulnerable for people to perpetrate violence against you. Or if you're going to go out kind of like what Megan had already said, carry pepper spray with you or um, some other type of self-defense tool in case somebody does try to assault you or kidnap you or even take a self-defense class so you know how to protect yourself if something happens to you. There's just so many things that we're taught that you need to learn to try to reduce harm from happening to you, um, which it has its place, right? Like we don't live in a world where violence just doesn't exist. We're not living in this delusional fantasy land where we think that there's no benefit to people learning how to protect themselves or even having tools to protect themselves. It's things that make people feel confident and maybe even safer, but at the same time, they can contribute to victim blaming because it could be one of those things that we start to question. Well, why weren't you taking pepper spray with you if you were going to be out at night? Or if you had something happen to you and you're at a bar, why weren't you watching your drink? Or why did you drink so much? Or why were you wearing the clothes that you had? Why were you by yourself? It's so easy for us to ask those questions, unfortunately. And it doesn't prevent violence from happening. Um, in general across the board. It may reduce the risk of violence happening to you, which is good, but overall it doesn't get at some of those key things that would prevent violence from happening. The only thing that prevents violence from happening is people making the choice to not perpetrate violence against other people. It's so frustrating <laughs> to say and the it's least. Like, and it's like this way of putting a lot of restrictions on how <laughs> like we're I don't know like you reading those things off is like man it's not don't feel very free right now like I don't feel like I, I have the freedom to just like do what I want because I have to think about like x y and z it might it would be really nice just to be like oh I can just go out because I want to and I don't have to think about the buddy system or like having my keys in my hand like a claw or like whatever like all these things like I could just have the freedom to do that and it's like we don't have that like or it doesn't feel that we do and then when people don't have those things that's where that the slippery slope of these risk reduction measures like I think about the nail polish like there's this nail polish that I think might have been invented. I don't know if it's like actually for sale or anything, but like you can dip your nail polish in a drink and it'll tell you if the drink has been spiked. But it's like, at what point are we like, oh, well, was she wearing the nail polish? Or, <laughs> or you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, with, like, it's like, yes, these are great and they definitely have their place. Like they can keep you safe, but they don't stop the violence from from stopping and they don't stop the victim blaming from stopping. In fact, in some cases, it makes it worse, like you just said. Absolutely. And that goes into why do people victim blame you know, we hear people say things like, well, 
why were they doing so, such and such? Why were they walking out late at night? I wouldn't have been doing that or I would have been at home with my kids. Why was she out running so early in the morning? And I think that when people use phrases like this, it makes people feel safe. I think it it's people trying to make sense of a really awful situation. And um, one reason people victim blame um, is to distance themselves from an unpleasant um, situation. And it I feel like when we see other people being harmed, we want to distance ourselves so that we do not feel like we are vulnerable to something like that happening to me. I don't want to feel like that could happen to me too. I would have done better um, or I would have done something different so that I wouldn't be in a situation like that. So harm won't come to me either. So I think that, you know, by labeling and accusing other people, um, we see other people as different from ourselves. And it's it's reassuring. It can be reassuring to ourselves to feel like we would have done something different so that we would not have been harmed like that other person was. Because I'm not like her, because I don't do that, this would never happen to me. But like you said already, Kiara, even if we do everything right, something can still happen. And we still may be blamed for what happens. So I want to tie this in. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. These types of attitudes, we want to talk about why these attitudes are so dangerous. Um, And they really do tend to marginalize victims and survivors. And it really does make it harder for people who have been harmed to come forward and report things that have happened to them, such as abuse or sexual assault. If somebody who has been harmed knows that you or their friend or society in general is going to blame them for what has happened to them, they're much less likely to say something, to come forward, to report it. And it's it's never the victim's fault for what has happened to them. It's not their responsibility. It is the person who has caused the harm. It's it's their choice. They made a choice to cause harm. And that's something that we should be focusing on instead of what was the person doing in order for the harm to come to them. But when we engage in like victim blaming attitudes, society allows the abuser to perpetrate relationship abuse or sexual assault while avoiding accountability for their actions. Everything that you just said, Kirsten, I've heard other people describe it as like sometimes people feel that they can't come forward because they don't feel like they're the quote unquote perfect victim. That people, I know that people are not going to believe me because I was out late. I didn't have somebody with me. I didn't take the self-defense class. I didn't have a pepper spray or a knife or a gun or whatever with me. And uh, yeah, just everything that y'all have said, it can be so well-meaning and so important, but it's it's so, for lack of a better word, it sucks that that contributes <laughs> to people feeling like, well, then help is not going to be for me because I didn't yeah. do the other things people thought that I was supposed to do. Yeah, we internalize it. Yeah, and it's a lot of well-meaning like ideas of trying to keep people safe. But it's like, yeah, it's internalized. They're like, well, I didn't do X, Y, Z. Like I had it coming or like, and it's because mm-hmm. society and all these people were hearing these messages from the people around us. We're hearing it on the media and it's, yeah, we're internalizing it. Yeah, I had it coming sounds like the she asked for it. Yeah. I was asking yeah. for yes. it by my outfit. Yes. Like I shouldn't it's have It's internalizing been that, that message yeah. for sure. Yeah. Y'all saying that I'm thinking about like the way it connects to gendered expectations. Like why aren't you at home with your children being a yeah. mother? Instead, you're out doing something for yourself and 
gendered expectations may say that women are selfish if they do something for themselves or women are not supposed to be dressing in a way that brings attention towards them or if it does bring attention towards them well what else would they expect if you dress a certain way then you have to expect that somebody is going to be sexually interested in you and you're inviting that so you can't say no you have deserved what came to you it just all of it is connected to all of these societal expectations of what you're supposed to do to be the perfect person. And if you step outside of that, then you deserve any violence or abuse that comes your way, which we know that that's not true. Yeah. And to that point too, it, it reinforces what people who abuse others. So it reinforces what they say, what I'm doing to you is your fault. So when you're already hearing Mm -hmm. that from somebody who has been abusing you and then you hear it in society or hear it from your friends from the media it reinforces that that belief which is just awful it can be really really traumatizing for people too and it starts when we're young even thinking of the crossover of some of the work that we do with child abuse prevention or child abuse prevention education that maybe some of the things that we teach young people about what it means to protect themselves from potentially experiencing abuse can sound well-meaning kind of like some of those other things that we use to for risk reduction but they aren't super helpful and they do contribute to uh, victim blaming Um, like specifically we had somebody share a child abuse prevention program that exists and the tagline is that um, rad kids are cool kids that don't let anyone hurt them which then puts the responsibility on children to protect themselves from adults, which is ridiculous. And the idea that, like, you're allowing yourself to be hurt. And what if you've already experienced abuse and now you're sitting in this classroom where this is being told to yeah, you? Yeah, and if you are hurt, then you're not a cool kid. Right. You're no There's longer so cool things. if somebody hurts you. It's so That's heartbreaking. so awful for, for children to internalize I'm... I'm cool if I don't let somebody else inflict harm on me. That's the opposite of what we should be doing. We should not be focused on the child who was hurt. Right. Mm -hmm. That the conversation should instead be around, A, being able to identify what your body parts are so you can tell somebody if they touch them and also having the conversation of what's appropriate and what's a not appropriate touch um, and that it's also okay for them to set boundaries yeah. Um, and that people, including adults, should be respecting their boundaries. That it could come from, of course, like this well-meaning place when we say, don't let anybody hurt you because we want to believe that that's going to protect our child. If they say no, then that's what's going to make somebody stop. But it also comes from the societal expectation or the societal stereotype that um, most child abuse happens in, like a situation where they're abducted from a park and it's somebody that they don't know and that they're just able to like scream and say no, and that's going to be the end of it. And that happens in some cases, but we know that most of the time it's somebody that they know and they trust and they've that person has done the work to groom them to earn their trust so they can perpetrate violence against them. Um, Yeah. So it's just another layer of this to sort of think about. And some of the other things that may contribute to victim blaming, like school dress codes and how it puts a lot of responsibility specifically on young girls to police their bodies to make sure that nobody else has a reaction to them. And it's usually things like their shoulders um, or their legs Or we had a conversation about um, sometimes people hear things coming when they were growing up. Like if 
an older man was coming over, like an uncle or maybe a family friend coming over and they say cover up, um, adults are going to be in the house, which then sends the message that it's your responsibility to not be what sexually tempting to the adult man, which is a huge problem. And it's like, why are we allowing this man into our house with our children? Yeah. Exactly. If you're afraid that that could potentially be the outcome, then maybe that person, like you said, shouldn't be welcome in your home. But why um, is that normalized? That's such a normal thing to to be more concerned about how a, how a grown adult man is going to react to how a child dresses. That's just something right. that's become normal. Maybe it comes from that societal belief that men can't help themselves and this is just sure. who they are and that women yeah. have to protect not only themselves, but also protect men yeah. from being from tempted. themselves. Yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Just yeah. so many things to have to consider. And I guess before we move on to the next part, another thing when we were planning for this episode that came up as we do planning for different awareness months, including Sexual Assault Awareness Month. And one of the exhibits that kind of happens nationally or maybe even internationally is what was I wearing, which sort of looks at what people were wearing when they were sexually assaulted. And quite a few of those exhibits also include children's clothes, yeah, um, which goes to show that what you wear doesn't matter. It's always the responsibility of the perpetrator, right? Absolutely. But, um, so I guess with that, we'll take our self-compassion break and then we'll come back and we'll talk um, about how media is connected to all of this. Because in our intro, we talked about not only how we'd be talking about victim blaming, but how media is a part of sort of furthering some of this victim blaming messaging that we see and we hear on a daily basis. Our self-compassion tip is a reminder that if you experienced violence or victimization, it was not your fault. Society, the media, and many of us have a long way to go to unlearn victim-blaming ideas that perpetuate violence. Be mindful of what you are telling yourself, stop blaming yourself, and instead treat yourself with the compassion you would offer to a good friend. All right, and welcome back. We're going to discuss now how the media and that the language we use also plays a uh, pretty big role in how we look at victim blaming and and how these stories are even like presented to us in the first place and how that I that will like greatly factor into like what we think about the story and the details that the media chooses to highlight for instance when reporting things like sexual assault or violence of any kind the audience will remember it in a particular way based off of how the media reports that crime. So we see that in different ways when we're listening to stories and it could be things that kind of like shame the survivor or affirms again that and it, the phrase like underage woman is like coming to mind or you know things that we see in the media that are framing a very serious crime to maybe not look at it so serious or maybe like to downplay the serious in the crime by like saying something like underage woman because what is an underage woman if it's not a girl, a girl child <laughs> a child that's a girl <laughs> right because you're either 18 or you're not like you're, you're either a teenager whose brain is still developing or you're an adult woman so yeah that phrase comes to mind and like how the media chooses to frame gender-based violence also and like how society understands that so we've seen in a few jackson katz documentaries too that oftentimes when for instance there's a, a shooting or something and it's a male suspect they won't necessarily use the word male like it becomes very gender neutral terms and we'll just hear things like suspect or shooter 
But then when it's like in terms of, you know, sexual assault, we'll see things like or non-consensual sex, you know, and it's like, what is non-consensual sex except a crime? Yeah. But now it's being worded in a certain way based off maybe like who's involved, like how much power that people have who's involved or just maybe like how that media is trying to frame it for whatever reason. Right. Like there's there's a lot of uh, benefit. I feel like the society benefits from, you know, people from shame and from people internalizing a lot of these things it makes the viewers or the readers it's makes them feel like nothing can be done about it as well the way that media reports things really does make a difference in the way that we react for sure yeah it's definitely contributing to our biases and influencing us if we're not paying attention and we're not aware of it happening it could very easily just be slipping in you know absolutely we're constantly consuming it Mm -hmm. yeah Um, I wanted to share also a study regarding media coverage for cyclists and pedestrian deaths. When editing the episode, we decided we wanted to give more context for this study. While it's not directly talking about domestic violence or sexual violence, it is a good example of how media can focus on the victims of violence and what they were doing when they were harmed instead of focusing on the people who cause harm and other underlying issues of violence, which would do more to address the problem. They analyzed 200 articles. Kelsey Ralph um, was an assistant professor at Rutgers, and she wrote in the summary paper, through grammatical choices and by selectively including some bits, so specific bits of information and not other pieces of information, local news coverage subtly but consistently blames vulnerable road users for crashes. So most news outlets um, that they discovered found or they found that they don't focus on the driver. So the person who Mm. was driving Mm -hmm. and caused the crash or was the one that caused harm. Um, They said they focused on the pedestrian or the cyclist's actions at the time of the crash. Um, So, for instance, in the article, it would say one of the riders was hit by a vehicle that was turning left. Um, instead of a phrase that would put more emphasis on the driver, a vehicle that was turning left hit one of the riders. Um, so you see mm. that it's a very subtle difference that they focus on the rider or the person that was hit versus the person that was driving the vehicle. They also offer what they call counterfactuals, which is also known as victim blaming, which is what we've been talking about. So statements implying that the vulnerable road user would not have been hit had they acted differently. So like they were wearing dark clothing or they were crossing outside of uh, a crosswalk. And this shifts the blame towards the victim, just like we've been saying. So so the media also tends to treat the incident as an isolated incident rather as a systemic issue. So they don't link it to other in- other crashes that are happening as well. Um, And they don't consult experts. So in the study of the 200 articles, not one article included comments from planners, engineers, road safety experts. And these people could have helped connect the crashes to. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that just makes me think if it's a problem, like like maybe the problem is like this intersection is poorly lit or like maybe there's some kind of like infrastructure like problem that could be solved very easily that could prevent future accidents but instead it's like oh they shouldn't have worn 
They shouldn't have worn black. Yeah. yeah. They like, were like, what? like that? why were you out at night riding or why were you riding a bike in general? Exactly. So dangerous. At As night, if you're not yeah. allowed to ride a bike, right? Yeah. Like, and, and then, you know, we can get into like cars being the way and like maybe there's like maybe car companies are like paying ads for that news channel. You know, it's like... <laughs> I'm getting deep there, but it's like, it makes you think. It's like, where's like, where's this message coming from, you know? And, the you know, if they included these experts, these people could have helped connect the crash to wider concerns, just like you said, like unsafe road design. So yeah. that could have shown, again, that this is a wider issue versus just an isolated incident. And there's actually something that can be done about it. But instead, they use terms like, oh, it's just an accident, which prevents us from being able to understand that these situations can be preventable on a systemic wide scale. If we're able to look at it and media is reporting it and we're able to actually see the underlying causes of what causes these crashes to happen, which it's not the person walking down the street's fault or it's not the person riding a bike um, down the road. So, yeah. And I mean, now it, that just made me think, too, like now there's news stories coming out that the the uh, perpetrator that killed Eliza Fletcher that we discussed at the beginning, like now they're saying that he was actually accused of a similar crime a little less than a year before that he had not been convicted for yet because that person's rape kit was still waiting, like, you know, on a shelf somewhere. So there's Again, like that reminds me of like the systemic issue we have now of how many rape kits are sitting on shelves and how many rapists and abductors and murderers are out there because we're not we're focused on what she was wearing versus why are these rape kits sitting on the shelf, which is absolutely contributing to the problem a lot more heavily than what she's wearing and what time they decide to go running or whatnot. And even further back when we were looking at media reports, it was talking about how he had been released from prison. He had did a 20 mm-hmm. year sentence for kidnapping and like aggravated assault for somebody when he was 16 and then had another assault charge when he was 11. So it also goes to show that like he has a history and a pattern of behavior and that somewhere along the way, society or community or the system did not offer him help in some way in order to prevent him from doing this, which also then looks at the system or at least the way that we interact with people within the community. We know that somebody's doing this. What can we do to help them? Which is not always on our radar, right? Because we think sometimes that people who perpetrate violence and abuse are lost causes who just hurt people and there's nothing we can do. But very few people are actually born without empathy and they don't care. Usually they just learn these behaviors um, or they choose these decisions that they're making. Uh, And we can teach people to make some different decisions. Uh, It's just, it takes more work. It sort of looks at that sort of different systemic issue of like, what can we do in the hands of the community to try to help people who make these choices? And talking about more along the lines of therapy and rehabilitation versus punishing somebody too. I feel like especially at such an early age, if somebody is that young, 11 years old, 14 years old, and is committing relatively violent crimes, there's other underlying things going on there. And it's it's really devastating to, to know that something probably could have been done early on and it could have prevented mm-hmm. um, the horrible tragedy that happened to Eliza Fletcher. Yeah. Which I guess brings us to some of our closing points of like, what can we talked a little bit about 
what we can do as a society to try to help some of these things, but some of the other things that we can do to challenge victim blaming is not questioning, as we've already said, what somebody was doing or what they were wearing, um, um, where they were, and just taking steps to actually believe them, which feels almost like a radical statement sometimes of like, have you mm-hmm. considered believing them? <laughs> Uh, that could be a first step for a lot of people um, because it <laughs> yeah. may not be their first thought of what they should do. Um, right. Focus on the actions of the person who caused the harm and holding them accountable or holding the system accountable, as you gave with that um, example of the study with looking at bike accidents. Focus on the person who caused the harm so then we can try to address it there instead of just putting all of the responsibility on people who could become potential victims. It sort of sends this message of the world is a dangerous place, which it is, but we've got to do a little bit more than just have people sit and wait for violence to happen to them, right? That we can prevent it. At least we're in the business of believing that we can prevent it. Speak up when you hear victim blaming comments and challenge them. Sometimes that can be a little bit, it's not always the easiest thing to do. I'm not going to say it's always super easy to challenge somebody making a comment, but that can make a huge difference to be like, hey, that's not cool. Or maybe we should refocus what we're saying. Instead of talking about what they were wearing, maybe we should talk about why that person chose to go after them in the first place. Or starting with yourself internally, being aware of your own thoughts or maybe comments that you make that contribute to victim blaming. Just taking some of those extra steps, um, even something that I we had talked a little bit about when we were talking about Eliza Fletcher, that's something that the communities across the country had did, um, or even individuals and communities, what they did was they finished, some runners finished Eliza Fletcher's run to sort of make the point that we should be able to go out and run at 4.30 in the morning and be safe. Yeah, Taking a stance that way and challenging it. So there's just so many things that we can do, whether it's a public display and a public declaration or just being aware of the thoughts and the comments that you make internally as a an individual all of it makes a difference absolutely i wanted to add too when you were talking about challenging people who use um, victim blaming comments you never know who's listening to you too you may have a friend or you may have somebody near you that has been harmed and when you make these comments about other people you're also showing the people around you it could be a family member or friends that you're not a safe person for them to come and talk to about something that's happened to them good point or other people could think the way that you think and they think they're not going to be supported they think they're the only one who wants to challenge it and by you saying something they may feel empowered to follow up and say something too absolutely Well, on that note, I want to leave us with a prevention and action tip, which is to be aware of what information you're consuming and whether or not there is a bias. Ask yourself, who's telling this story? What is their message? Who is benefiting from it being told this way? That's it for today's episode. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, speak up, speak out, and be outspoken.